It's a good word, not just for the disciples then, but Jesus says you'll be blessed if you do them. It's a good word for us. Uh, If you would, keep your Bibles open as we look at these verses down through John 13. There's also an outline sheet that's in your worship folder if you want to use that. Among the, the personal effects of Charles Schultz, creator of the famous comic strip Peanuts, Charlie Brown and Lucy, Snoopy, and all the rest, they found a paper that contained two sets of questions, two lists of questions. One list asked the reader to name the five wealthiest people in the world, the last five winners of the Heisman Trophy, the last five Miss Americas, ten people who've won the Nobel or Pulitzer Prize, last six winners of the Academy Award for Best Actor and Actr- Actress, and the last ten baseball teams to have won the World Series. How'd you do? <laughs> not great. Not great. Second set, second series of questions ask this. Name a few teachers who helped your journey through school. Three friends who cared for you through a difficult time in your life. Five people who taught you something worthwhile. Five people who helped you know that you're appreciated and loved. Different answers, huh? A lot different answers. Written at the bottom of the paper that they found in Charles Schultz's effects, written at the bottom, he, he wrote, the people who make a difference in your life are not necessarily the ones with the most credentials, the most money, or the most awards. They're the ones who have loved and cared. In John's Gospel, the public ministry, if you've got your Bibles open, the public ministry of Jesus ends at chapter 12. Last Sunday, Darwin uh, went through those last verses of chapter 12. His message was based in those verses at the end of that 12th chapter. And yet the, the narrative continues on for nine more chapters. Now granted, granted, John joins Matthew, Mark, and, and Luke in giving major attention to the passion story, the story of the crucifixion. But he doesn't begin that until chapter 18. And that consists of three chapters. But there are five chapters focused on the pre-passion, the pre-cross speeches and conversations of Jesus. You wonder why? Why? Well, more than any other gospel, John addresses the first major crisis of the church. What's that? It's the departure of Jesus. He addresses the first major crisis of the church. It's the departure of Jesus. It's not that Jesus' followers doubted the resurrection. But what are they to do now? Who will lead? And to do what? Are they to look for another? Well, it takes no imagination to see how vulnerable they were at this point to false teaching. And it's as though the disciples are kind of like children playing on the floor of the house. They look up and they see a parent putting on a coat and walking toward the front door. You know the questions that kids ask. You know the questions. What's the first one? Where are you going? Okay, yes. Can we go? No. Ah. Then who will stay with us? I mean, those are the questions that get asked. Where are you going? Can we go? Who will stay with us? And those, those are the questions that were being asked within the church. Chapters 13 to 17 address those questions. 
by reminding them that they're still cared for, they're still going to be loved. Now, we've concluded studying what's known as the book of signs. That's chapter 1, starting at verse 19, to the end of chapter 12. Darwin finished that up last Sunday. It answers the question about who Jesus is. Jesus is presented as showing signs, miracles, many testimonies to the, to the whole world. Now, what's beginning is what's called the book of glory. First part of John's gospel is called the book of signs. The second part that we're moving into at chapter 13, the book of glory. It goes until the 31st verse of chapter 20. And it shows Jesus manifesting his glory to believers. A whole different thrust here that we start this morning. Now, just before his betrayal, the trial, Jesus met with the disciples for a final meal. It's a somber, crucial time in his ministry. He knows the time's close for him to leave this world and to go return to the Father. The cross not only is overshadowing him at this point, it's as though the weight of it is almost just pressing literally down at this point upon his shoulders already. The disciples are nervous, they're quarrelsome, they're tense. They've seen and heard the growing opposition to some of the authorities against Jesus. They've seen that, uh, that uh, murderous glint of, of hate in the authorities' eyes. They've seen stones picked up, ready to be thrown at Jesus. They've, they've heard the rumors, the, the plots to do away with him and likely themselves. And so the curious thing now, though, in John's gospel at this point, is that he writes about the Last Supper, but he doesn't, he doesn't mention the event that we most associate with that night. John, here in his gospel, does not write about communion, what we know as the Eucharist or the Lord's Supper. He doesn't, he doesn't write about it. Why? Because his gospel is likely one of the last uh, New Testament books to be written. John can simply write, and during supper, or during the course of the evening, during the supper. Knowing that his readers are going to understand what he's talking about, having had for some time earlier gospels of Matthew, Mark, and Luke, the writing, the letters of the Apostle Paul. So John's intent here is not to, is not to supplement. Uh, I should say it is to supplement, not duplicate. John's intent is to supplement, to add some information, not to duplicate what readers already know. Now, if you have your Bibles open, you could turn to Luke chapter 22. You could look at verses 24 through 30. And Luke there in that 22nd chapter tells us about a dispute between the disciples in the upper room that night about greatness. They could have been arguing, uh, this dispute could have been about the seating order. For the supper, who's going to get the places of honor? Who's going to be on one side of Jesus and who's going to be on the, on the other? We already know from the Gospels that James and John's mom at one point came to Jesus and said, I'd like my boys to have the places of honor when you come into your kingdom, one on the left and one on the right. And now there may have been some sort of dispute about the seating order at the dinner. Luke 22 tells us that John's on one side, Judas is on the other. So with possible aggravation, the seating order, all of the tenseness of the moment, the dispute extends into now the washing of feet. It's customary for the host to provide a servant to, to greet the guests with a basin and a towel, perform this undesirable task of washing filthy, 
sandal grimy, Palestinian dusty, dirty, smelly feet. It's the duty of a slave. But even then, a slave of Jewish birth couldn't be forced to wash feet. It was usually relegated to a Gentile slave. No servant present there that night. We can imagine the 12 disciples already peeved with one another, maneuvering away from the basin and the towel. No one volunteering to take up that odious, unpleasant task. It may, may have been like petulant children, each whispering under his breath, not me. I'm not going to wash anybody's feet. I'm not going to do that. There's no servant, but what have I got? Word servant stamped across my forehead? No. I'm not going to do that. Peter, Peter's always the one to speak up first, and I don't hear him saying anything. What's the deal with him? Andrew always saying how much many people he brings to Jesus. He brings them first. Well, let him be first. Let him do something like uh, Philip. You know, what's the deal with him? He never says anything. Right? Never does much of anything. Stoop down. Do that. Who do they think they are? What's the deal? No servant tonight? Well, it's not going to be me either. Guess what? Not going to be me. So, they've come to the one, one of the most important feasts of their people, the Passover meal, and the most poignant time of their entire years with Jesus, with dirty feet and darkened hearts. It's a, it's a disturbing dinner. Disturbing dinner. Now, all of this only serves to emphasize the need on the part of the disciples to learn the important lesson that Jesus now is about to demonstrate. During the Passover supper, the head of the family, the head of the family group, would take the first of four cups, it was called the cup of thanksgiving, and would pass it around the room. And this most likely was the cup that Jesus used in instituting what we now know as the Lord's Supper, communion. Paul writes about it in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 16. You could just make a note of that, 1 Corinthians 10, 16. But after this, it was customary for the host to rise and to engage in a ceremonial washing of hands. So Jesus stood. The disciples expected little else than the ritual to which they were already accustomed, the washing of hands. But it wasn't hands that needed washing. It was hearts that needed cleansing. What Jesus was seeing that night was stubbornness and willfulness and pride and petulance. And the question is, what needed to happen? With calmness, majesty, probably total silence, Jesus stood, walked over to the pitcher in the basin. He poured the water into the basin. Then he removed his outer robe clothed in just the inner tunic now, the normal attire of a servant. He wrapped a towel around his waist, so both hands were free to carry the basin of water. And he bowed down, and he began washing the disciples' feet. Now, Jesus' knowledge and his action in washing the disciples' feet, first of all, Jesus knew that his time with them was short. His time was short. The first verse here, Jesus knew that the hour had come for him to leave this world and to go to the Father. 
the, the symbolism of the Passover on his mind, Jesus knew that he was the Passover lamb, the sacrificial lamb. He is headed within hours to the cross. His hour had arrived. Now, through John's gospel, this theme is developed from the beginning of his ministry, Jesus' ministry in John chapter 2, the wedding at Cana. His mom comes to him, and she says, they've run out of wine. Do something about it, Jesus. And Jesus' response, at that point, rather cryptic, kind of mysterious. He says, woman, my hour has not come. But then all through John's gospel, you, you see them listed here in chapter 7, chapter 8, chapter uh, 12, here in chapter 13, and then later in chapter 17, Jesus refers to his hour. Now, this hour... This hour is the time when Jesus would be glorified through his death, his resurrection, and his ascension. From a human point of view, his hour meant suffering. It means the cross. From a divine viewpoint, it means glory and salvation. So Jesus knew that his hour is fast approaching. But he also knew this. At this point, he is absolutely overwhelmed with love having loved his own who were in the world. And then this phrase, he loved them to the end. He loved them to the end. The Greek of it here actually says, to the end he loved them perfectly. He loved them perfectly. It's ace telos. It means he loved them with the total fullness of his love. Think about what that phrase means, not just in relation to them, but to your own life. He loves you with the total fullness of his love. He met the greatest injury with the deepest love. That's how he was approaching that night with them, with everything that's swirling around in that disturbing dinner. He knew that his enemy was at work. The evening meal was in progress. The devil had already prompted Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, to betray Jesus. Judas is mentioned eight times in John's gospel, more than any other. Jesus knew that Judas was about to betray him, Satan had determined to use Judas as his victim, instrument, to betray Jesus. But Judas, don't overlook this, Judas was a willing participant. He decided to do it. Free will in that. He was a willing participant in the action. We see the humility of Jesus contrasted with the pride of Judas. Faithfulness versus treachery, light and darkness, and on and on. Complete polar opposites going on here. Jesus knew that he was in charge of the events surrounding his death. It's in verse 3. He knew that the Father had put all things under his power. He's no helpless victim of some sort of conspiracy. He knew what he had to do. He was willing to do it. He was seeing it through to perfection. Perfect love. He was seeing it through to completion. It is finished is what he would say later on the cross. Jesus knew precisely who he was, that he'd come from God. He's returning to God. This one phrase, this little phrase speaks of Jesus' authority. It speaks of his divine, his, his divine origin, and it speaks of his future glory. There's no panic, not one drop of panic in him. Instead, what we see is dignity. And even as he moves to the, into the events of the cross itself, what we are witnesses to is this kind of perfect, empowered, embodied love in Jesus. It's incredible. He knew what he was doing and acted his ministry to the whole world. Got up from the meal, took off his outer clothing, wrapped a towel around his waist, 
poured water into a basin, began to wash his disciples' feet, drying them with the towel that was wrapped around him. Think about this as kind of a, an enacted parable. He's giving a dramatic illustration of his entire ministry. Don't miss what's happening here. Here's what the Apostle Paul says about it. Jesus made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness. He humbled himself, became obedient to death, even death on a cross. Now, look at what is happening here in the upper room that night, and look at what the Apostle Paul says about what Jesus is in terms of servant. Think about it. Jesus, that night, the upper room, rose from supper, and in a greater way, he rose from his throne in splendor. That night he laid aside his garments. Paul says he laid aside his own glory. Jesus took a towel, tied it around his waist like a servant. Paul writes here in Philippians that he took the very nature of a servant. He poured water into a basin. A few short hours, he's going to pour out his own blood. What Jesus shows here is so much more than some sort of simple act of courtesy. It's so much deeper than that. It's deeper than any kind of ethical lesson. It's more profound than that. Look again, if you've got your Bibles open, look again at the words laid aside or took off there in verse 4. And then later in verse 12, the Greek of it literally says he took up his cross or his clothes. He took up his clothes. They're identical, identical terms that Jesus had used earlier when he had spoken of his death as the good shepherd in John chapter 10. I lay down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me. It's his decision. It's his action. It's his will. It's his love. I lay down my life that I may take it up again. And what we see happening here is Jesus laying aside and then taking up. It's the same kind of enacted parable. And all of this brings us to the heart of the meaning in the exchange between Jesus and Peter. Jesus demonstrates the kind of sacrifice he wants his followers to live out in their own lives. He says, now that I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also should wash one another's feet. I've set you an example that you should do as I have done for you. As I've done. Now it's important to note that Jesus is calling his disciples not to do what he has done. That is, simply to wash each other's feet as if that's the totality of his, of his example. Okay? It's not the same. We're to do as he's done. What's that mean? To take on a lifestyle of humble, sacrificial, personal ministry and service. That's what he's talking about here. Our life, our lifestyle, take that on as a, as a way of humility, sacrifice, personal ministry, and service. Like Charles Schultz's list, we may not have the most credentials. We may not have the, the most money, the greatest awards. But the daily patterns of our lives are meant to show that we love. The daily living out of our lives are meant to show that we care. Conveying the love of Jesus to the world around us, the world that Jesus died to save. The song says it, they'll know we're Christians by our love. So, it's clear that Jesus is doing what the disciples should have done 
but refused to do and did not do. The pitcher, the towel, the basin are always present. But time after time, our tendency is to try not to notice. So often we'd rather stand on our own dignity and pride rather than kneel in sacrifice and service. We can argue about our rights, our hurt pride, our correct viewpoint, what's not been given to us, what's not been shown at the right time, how we've been neglected, put down, hurt, humiliated, shamed, not understood, disgraced, and even wounded beyond forgiving. I've just been wounded beyond forgiving. The desire for prominence, refusal to forgive, selfishness, impatience, self-centered retaliation, their death to love, their death, their death to humility, their death to sacrifice in the name of Jesus. So what we realize is that we meet no sin and poor attitude or action in the disciples there in the upper room that night that we do not first encounter in our own lives. I don't know about you. (laughs) I don't know about you, but don't you think Jesus' action would have been easier to take if it had been offered to the rest of the 12 but not to Judas? Isn't there some kind of isn't there some kind of difference between just petulance and pettiness and actual betrayal? Ought not there be some sort of consideration of that? Don't you kind of wish that Jesus had waited until Judas made his exit off into the night before he kneeled down and washed the disciples' feet? No, he didn't do that. He, he, did. he, washes, he washes the filthy feet of the one who will use them to walk from the dinner to sell out his master. Do, do, do you understand what I've done for you? Do you understand this? What I've done for you. Jesus has the nerve to ask us. We think in our hearts, well, no, not really. Do you understand what I've done? No, not really. Uh, It's really actually quite a mystery when it comes right down to it. So it's as though Jesus seems to say as he kneels, lit by just a flickering lamp, he says, Well, then, watch me now. Watch me. The dinner began with a disturbance among the disciples, petulance and selfishness. And it just continued on that way with Jesus doing what he's done with passion and sacrifice. It's just a disturbing dinner. Jesus says, Watch now. Watch. Here's how you do the discipleship thing. 
Here's, here's how you go about the, the follower business. Here's the caring thing. Here's how you get really close to the true and living God, my Father. Watch me. All you have to do is take a dirty, smelly foot of an outrageous person like Judas and hold it tenderly in your hand and wash it and care for it as if you were caressing the hand of the most beloved person of your life. See how it's done? Is that so difficult?